This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. You cannot be strategic if you can't say no. We can't be all things to all people. On this episode of Bridging the Gap, I am honored to be talking with the workplace therapist himself, Brandon Smith, and I am honored to be able to call Brandon a friend and someone that me and my companies have learned so much from. Brandon is an author, he's a speaker, he's a podcast host, and a therapist that has committed himself to improving the health and functioning of the workplace. We got into some great topics surrounding how to say no, enhancing the lineage and firms to get more leaders within your teams. We talked about the 80-20 plan, and we talked about it in a slightly different way than you may think. And we also talked about how to push your team to lift heavier weights to reach higher goals. Gosh, isn't that what we all want from our teams? Brandon also takes me down the path of understanding the importance of being strategic in your work-life actions to be able to start saying no to more things. This is something that I struggle with, that we all struggle with, and Brandon brings us some actionable ways to start saying no more often. Brandon, this was an amazing conversation. So grateful to have you in my group of friends and my network. And I'm glad to be bringing this to the community of Bridging the Gap. So let's jump in to this episode. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Brandon Smith, welcome to Bridging the Gap. Long time, no talk, my friend. It's so great to see you again and be talking. How's everything on your side of the world? Matt, super excited to be on the show. Things are great in my side of the world. I I, I can't complain. We, we talked a little bit before the show started. Got two books out. Life's good. Life is full. I, I said it. I mean, we, for full disclosure, Brandon helped our RA firm on a leadership standpoint, and we'll get into all of that in the past. And I say that we got Brandon before he got big. And, you know, I always like to be on that side of it because, you know, you get, you know, before everybody wants you, you know, we want to be the first one, but your journey has been amazing. We've been following it and you've been super helpful to us. And I'm just so happy for you. Tell us, I mean, the family is older. You're growing up. I mean, you're just, you got, we we're talking about kids. I mean, how old are your kids now? You got three of them, I think. Yes, right? I've got three. So my oldest is my daughter, Abby. She is 20 year old. She is a rising junior at the University of Georgia. She's in the business school. She's doing great. That's a whole other story. And then I've got a, a rising senior at Roswell High School here in the Atlanta metro area, Noah. He's 17. And then I've got a rising sophomore, Aaron. He is 15. So yeah, also at Roswell High School. So yeah, it's a, a, a life is good, my friend. It's it's funny because now they're they're so much more grown up and bigger, and you know, my wife and I can be gone for a weekend. We can take a weekend out out and and stay at a hotel, and we don't have to worry about them. It's it, it, it's, it seems it's really so foreign. It seems so foreign to me. We were talking about it a little bit, right? I had I had bring your kid to work today to so I brought my son who's three to work, and then I have an eight month old daughter. It's the other end of the spectrum, right? I mean, I I don't know when I'm going to be able to get out without them. It feels like it's forever ago, forever away. But you know, it's the journey, man. It's a it's a fun journey, and um, you know, I'm glad to hear your kids are well. And speaking of journeys, I, I'd love for us to start this podcast. Hearing about your journey to get in, get into this place of helping coach leadership teams and executives, and you know, being a business coach for them, I'm just curious. And I always ask people, like, did you wake up when you were 14 years old, 15 years old, and be like, you know what, I'm going to write two books, and I'm going to be a, a business leadership coach, and it's just going to work out well? 
what first off what were you what did you want to be when you were a kid and then how did you get to this point that's what i'm always curious about so that of course like most journeys this was not a direct route in fact when i was growing up when i was in middle school i had an uncontrollable stutter so being in front of public and being doing public speaking was definitely not anything i was ever comfortable with so every day before middle school i'd wake up and i'd go see my speech therapist at school early before the school day started and i'd work on my b's work on my p's work on my t's and then go on to the school day and and of course you know that that it's never easy to have a stutter in the first place particularly not easy in middle school so the way kids with stutters are treated you know i just really distanced myself from people i really didn't want to have much to do with people and so that kind of continued on in, in high school and college. I ironically majored in communications in college and really didn't know what I wanted to do with the degree. Like most good communication majors, I was unemployed at graduation, wondering, what am I going to do with this? I took a job with a small chain of retail stores. It was a family-owned business and they had about 14, 15 stores. And my and I was going to be the assistant manager of one of these stores. And my boss was the son-in-law of the owner. So the woman who started the business, her daughter marries this guy. He's my boss. And so he greets me on my first real day of full-time work. So I'd worked lots of other jobs growing up, but this was my first real full-time job after college. And so he greets me at the door of one of these stores. And he says, look, I'm really glad you're going to be here as the assistant manager. But before you get started, I have a task for you. Waiting for you in the back room is the current assistant manager of the store. But he doesn't know you're coming. So your job is to go back there in the back room. You fire him and you get his job. That was my first task on my first day of work. And that was how my boss rolled. He did everything that we learn as leaders you shouldn't do. He loved surprise visits to try and catch people doing the wrong thing. He'd come into the store, he'd say, oh, I don't like what Sharon's wearing, Brandon, go fire her. And I had to do more layoffs in the first six months of that job than any other time in my career. And that experience woke me up, made me realize if, if he was any indication of the state of leadership in the world, I really want to change that because, you know, we, we, we can't always choose necessarily the families we get, but boy, we can choose our workplaces and we have a lot more control over those environments, setting the right culture, building the right teams. And so I went off and pursued a clinical therapy degree to build up my coaching skills. Back then, there was no executive coaching certification. You couldn't really do that. So I got a clinical therapy degree. I, I practiced the inpatient world for a number of years, and I transitioned into the corporate world, got my MBA from Emory University, where I also teach, and then had an opportunity to join a, a, a traditional consulting firm, a Deloitte in their human capital practice. But I turned that down, hung my shingle, and I've been on this journey almost 20 years. So it's a combination of individual coaching with leaders working with senior teams, leadership teams, like you and your team, and then doing broader just sessions around best practices of, of leadership, whether it's for, you know, big, broad audiences or, or teaching classes to executive MBAs at, at, at Emory. So keeps me busy. And then of course, podcasts and books and all those other sorts of things. So ironically, I spend a lot of my time talking, even though I grew up with a stutter. So it was definitely not a direct route to answer your question, but it's one that I'm really passionate about. I, I can tell, and I, I I know it from firsthand experience having you work with our team. And um, you know, I I I, I want to know. I'm just going to go down this rabbit hole for a second. How did that conversation go when you fired the assistant manager right on the first day of your job? How did that conversation go? Well, so given the way I described my boss, and and I use boss rather than leader to describe him. He, it, 
it was funny. That assistant manager was not at all surprised. It was almost like he was like, yeah, I figured something like this was going to happen. Like he had worked with him long enough. I was hoping that he'd be like, well, I actually had to do this for the person when I took their position. So he's like, well, I just you know, knew that it was going to be the kind he, of way. He might have. There wasn't really much conversation. He just kind of nodded his head knowingly. And he was like, yep. And he just packed his stuff up and left. So maybe you're right, Matt. Maybe he, maybe that's just what you had to do to get that job. That's I, it. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's incredible. Well, let's talk about the your your new book, The Author versus Editor Dilemma. This is something that, you know, when while you're in the process of thinking of this book, you were helping us out and doing some coaching and, and leadership skill training on our side. And um, you mentioned the title and everybody was just like, ah, like, yeah, what a great title. And so I'd, I'd love for you just to Give us a background, right? The synopsis of the book of author versus editor, because it is a topic that I'll say it's catchy, it's memorable, but it's also extremely useful. It's something I use with our team every single conversation. It's like, they're like, well, this is what I want to do. And I use the author versus editor conversation. Excellent, Matt. Well, I'm so glad. And, And that's the whole point, right? Something simple and sticky and practical. So here's the concept in short, whenever there's a leader and a direct report in that dynamic, someone always has to sit in the author seat and someone always has to sit in the editor seat. So those seats have to be filled. The key is knowing what seat to sit in when. So to cut to the chase, if you're the leader, you need to be sitting in the editor seat 80% of the time and the author seat only 20 And that makes perfect sense when you think about your all-time best direct reports or or, or team members. They come to you and they say, hey, Matt, there's a problem. Here's what I think we should do about it. They present you something. And they say, I'd love to get your thoughts, right? They author a solution for you to edit. And our not-so-effective team members are going to come to us and they're going to say, hey, there's a problem. And they're going to throw their hands up in the air and they're going to say, what do you want me to do about it? And as soon as they do that, they're actually reeling you into that author seat. So then you either end up telling them what to do which takes a lot of time, or you just say to yourself, you know, things are just moving so fast. Let me just grab it and do it myself. And now they're not learning how to do it. And now you find yourself working a lot of crazy hours. So it's, it's really important that we know what seat to sit in when. And and so what I find is the the way that this, the, the concept works is it's a vertical tool, any vertical relationship you want to use this. So we, so in a perfect world, we author up and we edit down, we author up, and we edit down. So we authored our leader or our clients and, and, and they edit for us. Or we have our teams authored us. It also works really, really well in parenting because we want to grow our kids when they get into those early teen, tween years. We need to shift from authoring everything, you know, kind of scripting their lives down to the day, down to the minute, to giving them more ownership to take, take decision making into their hands, do their own laundry, make their own lunches. So when they come back from college at 23, they are fully formed adults that can get a job and pay their rent and, and be positive contributors to, to the community. But when we stay in that author seat too long, we stunt their growth. They come back to 23, a little gooey in the middle, still living in our basement. So it's, it's really all about maximizing our time and impact as leaders, getting us more working on the business than in the business, but also elevating the performance of our team. So it's high performing and we're really helping them to, to master kind of the the components of of authorship And, and the traits of the author. There's really three big traits that we're trying to grow. Authors take ownership. They show initiative 
and they display critical thinking. Wouldn't we want everyone on our team to be doing those things with us and the business? They take ownership, they show initiative, they display critical thinking. So it's really getting those folks to sit in, in those seats. There are cases when as leaders, we need to author. We, we, we can talk about that if you'd like, but that's essentially the concept in short. And so now that everyone's hearing this, it, immediately I know light bulbs are going off and they're saying, I got it. I, I need to tell my team all about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it just, it's such a simple concept. I do want to get into those times when the leader needs to author, but I want to go back to something because I just, I, I, it's such a great tool to use. I, I but I, that, that topic, that scenario that you were alluding to is saying, ah, just, I'm so busy. Things are just going. So it's going to take me longer to tell you how to do it and have you do it. I just need to get it done. We need to move. We got this. We got to just keep moving. That, that situation always happens. And I think that this industry, wealth management specifically, is such a, it's, I mean, every industry is unique in their own way, but this industry is unique in a way that it was basically, it's still in this like Gen 1 who built the industry and built the firm moving to Gen 2, and they have everything in their head. And it's not like your typical org chart structure yet. We haven't businessized yet to that point to where we have typical org charts. And so teams have a real struggle with this because it's like, I'll just deal with the client. Like we just need to deal with it. And they have a struggle with this author versus editor because of time, because of lack of infrastructure, and also just because it's kind of in one person's head or two people's heads of how everything's done. I'm curious, how do we help get over that hurdle, right? How can we move to that point for a firm that doesn't have like a typical org chart and it's just a bunch of new people coming in and having to train them, like balancing that? And also still, it's a service-based business. We can't let the, it fall on the client from that standpoint. I think that's some of the challenges that wealth sure. managers face. I'm curious on your span, standpoint of you hear that and what's your response? Like get over it, like move on. But what is the response on that side? It, 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 it depends upon what you want. So mm. if your goal is either a healthy generational transition or for a lot of folks listening, scale and leverage, we, we want to grow the business, right? Maybe open, open up other offices. It can't all rely and live in your head and, and land on your shoulders. You become the bottleneck. Now, it feels good for, to, to be that in some ways. And so I uh, talk about some traps that keep us from doing author editor. One of the traps, the most common trap, Matt, the hero trap. Right? It's, it's great to be the hero. So I was I'm about to do a session with about 15,000 auto care owners across North America. They, they all license the Napa auto care brand. Okay, these are mechanics. They own auto shops. They don't, they're not marketers, so they license the Napa brand. I'm going to do a session with them out in Vegas. And interviewing them, they talked about this problem. They said, you know, these, these, these are all, all the jobs I've done before. They're, they're fun for me. And it's great to jump in and solve the problem that maybe my techs can't do. But these are the business owners. That's not what they should be doing. They should be growing the business, marketing the business, getting more customers, thinking about how they can maybe open up another location, not getting under the hood and actually doing the work. So the hero trap, while it feels good, we're actually stunting the growth of our team and, and creating a codependent relationship. So that's one. The second, one of the other traps that comes into play here is the fear of failure or loss of control trap. Hmm. So sometimes we just, we love to be the guy or, or, or gal, the person who has all the answers. And we want, because it's been our baby, we want everyone cooking our recipes exactly our way. But when we dictate the how, we are stripping people of ownership, initiative, and critical thinking. Because if, if I'm just, if you're just cooking my recipe, I'm not really allowing you to be creative and 
bring to the business your strengths and talents. So I'm actually limiting the business of all the potential that's there. So those are two real traps that happen, particularly when you've got a founder or an owner that has taken pride in kind of growing the business. So so the the question really is for her or him. Are, are, Are you okay with having that be the ceiling? Or do you, or do you want a healthy transition or more importantly, growth? Yeah. Um, and, and if you do, you've got to get out of your own way and, 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 and move from player on the field to coach on the sidelines with, with a clipboard. But that's hard for folks. A lot of folks love, love being in the game. You know, that's, 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 that's hard to do. It's so hard because I think about it, like there's a lot of people that, you know, you think about what happiness is and a lot of happiness comes from solving problems, right? Solving problems drives happiness. Everybody thinks that like happiness is a mindset, but it actually comes from like the process, right? The problem solving process. And, you know, like the mechanic story resonates. It's like, I love to solve that problem. That drives me happiness. Like it, it, it shows like accomplishment. Why do I want to give that up? And like that is like the the trigger or like the the jump you have to make if you want to move from executor or tactician to leader, right? Yeah. I mean that is, and if you don't want to make that jump, okay, that's fine. There's plenty of roles for executor tacticians, but if you want to be a leader, you got to make that jump, and it's hard. I remember us going through it on our team. Like you saw it, it was a it was a challenge for a lot of us to to give up on that. And you have to sometimes take a step back and slow down and fail. And then you can make 14 steps forward. It's that resonates. That's a tough thing. Yeah, here's your kind of a good inspiring story around that. The, the simple story was the story of Chick-fil-A, you know, so Truett Cathy with his brother had the dwarf house, just one location across the street from Delta mechanics. And they had it basically open every day of the week, including Sundays. And, and it was a gravel parking lot. So they would sleep in the restaurant. And when they heard a car come in and drive on the gravel, that would wake them up. And they would cook for, for – and it was just the one location. And at some point, he realized, wow, I could make so much more impact. It could be so much easier. And I could leave a legacy if I got out of my own way. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of Chick-fil-A. And, and now think about the impact and, and not only in terms of, of just the food, but also the kind of, of impact they have on the communities that they serve. So it's, it's about, it's also about legacy. You know, what do you want your legacy to be, mm-hmm. which can be, you know, a, another way to kind of reframe that, um, that purpose and, and opportunity for all of us. Well, it's also, what do you want your legacy to be? And are you willing to put into the process to get to that legacy, right? If you're yeah. not, then it doesn't matter what you want your legacy to be. If you're not willing to put in the time and change and give up some of those things in the, in the hurt, it's, it, yeah, everybody wants us, this legacy, but they want just to come to them. So I, I, hear, I agree with you. I, I want, so you said 80% of the time leaders should be editing, right? Yes. Vertically yes. down. They yes. author up. But when is it that they should be authoring, right? When should, should they yeah. ever be authoring down? Yes. If so, yeah. when? Yeah. So there's, there's really two big categories. And, and our teams look to us for this. The first one is strategy slash priorities. So our team's going to look to us. And that's strategy with a big S. Okay. So what are our big targets and goals? Whether it's clients we want to serve, families we want to impact, maybe it's investment dollars under our roof, whatever it happens to be. But what are those targets that we want to go after for, for that year? And then it's also strategy with a little less, which is priorities for the week. 
So, okay, what do I need to focus on leader? What, what are the things you want me? Cause everything's urgent all the time in our world today. So we, we can't have everything be urgent. What's the things we really need to focus on? And they look to us for that. So in a perfect world, there'd be somewhere around three to five priorities that as a leader, you're kind of constantly focusing the team on and driving in any using the head coach analogy, any head coach is kind of driving those priorities in order to help that team become a world-class winning world championship team. The second one, a second big category is culture. So what's the culture of the business? You know, what, what's our unique kind of a special sauce or flavor that we bring to the industry and how we want to serve our clients and, 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 and the people that, that we're working with and helping. And what are those kind of, I usually three to five works there too, three to five values or, or, you know, mantras that we want to stick to that everyone should rally around that really embodies how we deliver to the, the people that we serve. So the, the leader's job is really to make sure they're communicating both those things regularly, promoting those things to create alignment and focus. And, and that's, that's both simple and hard, but that's really the job of a leader, creating that alignment and focus. So everyone knows exactly what job they need to play in order to make the business successful. Yeah, it, um, you know, when you're talking about that, it reminds me of kind of some stories I've heard about Nick Saban, how he never even talks about, everybody knows he wants to win the world national championship. Everybody knows that's the ultimate goal, but he doesn't even talk about that. He talks about what can you do right now at this specific moment? And he says, go do that, right? Really hones in on the urgency of trying to do everything. It's like, no, just go play your position and go tackle this guy. And I, I think that when you talk about priorities and what should I be focused on today, it's breaking it down into that simple area. And, and you're mentioning about urgency, which then brings up your 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 first book, The Hot Sauce Principle. Yeah. And you know, when I read about The Hot Sauce Principle, and I want you to tell the, the, the listeners about this book, it makes me feel like my life and like something that I've had to control, right? Everything is important. Everything needs to be done. Everything is needed to be done today. And that's just not true. But tell us about the hot sauce principle and where, where you came from and what's the book so, about. So the, the two books are, are cousins, if not siblings. They're very much related. So let's, so hot sauce principle almost sets the stage. So it's, it's the hot sauce principle, how to live and lead in a world where everything is urgent all the time. And, and, and the reality is we don't live in the world we used to maybe 15, 20 years ago. Today, time is our most precious resource. It's not money, it's time. And everything's urgent all the time. There's lots of reasons from that. Everything from technology to lean teams to constantly moving markets to transforming businesses and industries. I mean, everything's just moving at such a high pace. And so the reason why it's called the hot sauce principle, and I'm, for those who are listening and not watching, I'm holding a bottle of Tabasco in my hand, a, a, a big bottle. And the reason why it's called the hot sauce principle is because it's a great analogy. It, it, I love hot sauce, frankly. I love putting it on my food. And a little bit of hot sauce creates flavor, creates focus, makes it a priority. But if everything coming out of our leadership kitchen is covered in this stuff, right? The appetizers doused in hot sauce, the salad's swimming in hot sauce. The entree's covered in hot sauce. And the brownie at the end is just in a big pool of hot sauce. And of course, we, we live in the Southeast, so our iced tea is really just hot sauce with some ice in it. If you're like me, you're going to be curled up in a ball, begging for relief, and you're not going to be able to taste anything. So as leaders, we've got to be really careful on where and when we use this stuff and make sure that we're using it in a, in a focusing way and not creating too much 
chaos and, and burnout. And some of our people we know, they only need a few drops of this. We put a few drops on their tongue, they are off to the races. Other folks on our team, they, they may need the whole bottle. But that's that's part of the art art of leadership. So it's it's all about knowing how and when to use hot sauce as you're kind of focusing focusing your team. Well, and let's take that a, a step further because this is something just is, is intriguing to me because you're saying that now things are coming at us so quickly, things are moving so quickly, and and a lot of the reasoning behind that is the evolution of the internet, the evolution of social media, you know, everything at our fingertips, the ability to get content or information whenever we need to. And that's leading us to make that change. I'm curious how we use this in our own lives, right? Like, how do we decipher what is urgent, right? If we don't have, how do we lead? How can we all just be leaders of ourselves in this world that is so fast paced using some of the concepts from the hot sauce principle to know when it is actually urgent and when it's not, when we actually need that to flare up and when we don't, because it's so hard for our minds to decipher because we have so much coming into it. At this point in time, and leaders struggle with that too, right? Because as yeah. leaders, we're humans, and we have to determine how to how to siphon through that as well, just as humans. Yeah, and so just like author editor, it's knowing what seats to sit in at the right time, knowing when to move and when not to move. Don't just be reactive. So there's a famous matrix. It's Stephen Covey's matrix. It's also called the Eisenhower matrix. Many of you may have seen it or heard of it before. It's a two by two matrix. One axis is urgency, goes from low to high. The other axis is importance, low to high. And the idea is you really should only be focusing on the high importance boxes. So of the four boxes, the box that's high urgent and high important, which typically are like crises, true crises, okay? And then the other one is low urgent but high importance. And, and while that doesn't sound like a big deal, the stuff that lives in there is stuff like strategy and culture. Mm. Strategy and culture is never urgent, but it is always important, and then the things that are low importance, regardless of urgency, we should be ignoring or delegating or just making sure we're not doing. But the reality is we do that stuff too, because we just want to get it out of our inbox. And, and it's and so sure, easy. Oh, it's so easy. Yeah. Someone, I'm sure people listening right now, watching this at some point in the last week, someone sent you an email. It was neither, it was neither high importance and maybe not even high urgency. And you responded to it just because you wanted it out of your inbox. And every time we do that, you know, we're, we're, we're creating a perpetuating system and, 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 it, and also promote burnout. So it's knowing what is our highest and best use and then how to properly delegate those other things or, or frankly say no. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's th those are the kind of the, the lost arts that are really important today. So let, you just said something that I, I want to, I, I want to talk on for a second is you just said saying no. Right. And you're yeah. a workplace therapist. You are the therapist. I'm laying on the couch right now as a leader. And I want I want Brand Smith, the workplace therapist, to tell me how do I how what are some tips on saying no more effectively? Because we are terrible at saying no, especially being in a service based business. Yeah. But we need to say no more. Right. Like I, I, it, It's just been something that's so hard for many people. Yeah, it's hard for all of us we, you know, because we, we don't want people to not like us. You know, there's that people pleaser side of us, people who are great at service providing and customer relationships. You know, they, they want to please the customer. They want to say yes. And that's all good. But, but I'll go back to my strategy class I took when I was getting my MBA. Lots of great frameworks and models in there. But probably the most important thing anyone can take away from any strategy class is summed up in this one line. You cannot be strategic if you can't say no. We can't be all things to all people. 
everyone listening to this right now knows there's probably a set of clients that are just not a good fit for your business because maybe they don't share the same values or they don't have the same kind of level of investment dollars or they're not in the same life stage, whatever it happens to be. But you, you know, making sure that we, we know who it is we want to help and serve and we focus on them and that we gently say no to others or demands that fall outside that scope. So we can, we can focus on our, our hedgehog, if you've read mm-hmm. kind of good to great, focus on our hedgehog. So Matt, to your question, how do we say no? For folks in the service provider and, and service business world, the best way is let's borrow from our friends in improv. So if you know improv, improv, the whole mantra is yes and. So we don't say no, but we say yes and. So we'd say, yes, I would love to help you with this, but unfortunately, this just is not going to be a good fit for us and our firm at this at this point. But let me provide you some references and resources that might be a better fit for you. So we help solve the problem for them without us being the one doing it. Mm. So you want to do 20% no, 80% solve the problem without it being you. Where we go wrong is we say no and then all the reasons why we said no. And when we do that, we've inadvertently set up a negotiation. Because <laughs> all they have to do is counter our reasons and then they win, right? <laughs> I laugh because I, that was me. I, 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 that's me in a nutshell. And I've even had you help me train me and I still do it, which shows how difficult it is. But the yes and model does work, right? It's yes, and, it's yes but it's not right. That's so great. And I laugh because it's true to me. I, have a, I want to talk about a few more questions before we, we wrap this up because, I mean, I could have you on for forever. I, I think I, you can learn so much is right now we're going through this transition from COVID, the pandemic, where we work from home, getting back into the workplace. I'm curious, you work with a lot of leadership teams. You work with a lot of large companies, small companies, all sizes. I'm curious on your perspective of remote work and you know, if, if firms are doing remote work, what are ways to lead a team without losing the culture, right? Because we only knew how to lead teams in the past I know that there were some teams doing remote, but it was mainly in person. Like that's how we did it. That's how we built culture was in the office. Now leadership teams are having to do that with more remote work. And that seems to be something that's going to stay. How do teams do that effectively in this changing kind of workplace environment that we're in? Yeah. So I'm going to speak to wave a magic wand, what, what works perfectly if you're able to do it. So if you're able to do it, and if you decided that you're going to be primarily a remote workplace team, you, you want to create at least quarterly meetings in person. You want some kind of quarterly meeting, quarterly, not to use the pun, but quarterly booster shot. And the reason why you want to do that is because what allows the team to function at a high level and trust each other are all the subtle things that happen when we're in person. Like having a meal together or having drinks together or just laughing together and, and playing together. I, I can't tell you how many folks I've talked to most recently this year. They said, you know, it's been two years. We haven't done anything fun. We haven't gone to Top Golf. We haven't gone out for dinner. And it's all business all the time. And it's just, it's just, we work hard, but we need to also find time to connect and, and, and enjoy each other. So it makes the working hard that much easier. The camaraderie comes in those downtimes. So we need that quarterly. If you can make that happen, invest in finding a central location where everybody can go to and get a hotel and, you know, have some meetings for a couple of days, but also really just make sure 50% of that is just enjoying yourself. 
I, I work with a, a architectural, environmental architectural firm this this year, and all their folks are scattered all over the country: New York, Pittsburgh, Denver, L.A., Atlanta. They're all over. They came together and they said, "We're not going to do any work." For two days, we're not doing any work. We're going to do a team building session. I, I'd facilitate that in the morning. I said the rest of it's just going to be fun. We're going to have lunch together. We're going to go hiking. We're going to, you know, we're going to do dinner. We're going to just spend time to get to know each other and connect. So then we are are doing our day to day regular work. It's it's going to feel easier and smoother, because remote work is always defaults to operational. It defaults to the meeting agenda. It's hard to talk about our kids or our families or anything else that may be going on. So that little, those little moments, they, they, they feel unproductive, but they are tremendously valuable in keeping the team culture connected and really accelerating performance in those remote times if you're able to make it work. Do you see and this is maybe I'm going a little bit outside the spectrum here, but do you see that the, the the shift to more remote work and more companies doing more remote work is going to have a negative future impact five, 10, 15 years down the road on, on workplace culture from that standpoint? Because I mean, I agree yes. with you and that it's, I mean, it's yes. gotta be more negative. It's gotta have a negative trend over time. I would assume. Yes. So let me tell you what, what happened long-term and then let me give you a little bit of hope. Yeah. I don't think I it's like hope. Happen. I like hope. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, so we're in a business where it's all about relationships, okay? And, and so you have to have that connection to build those relationships. And, and when you live in a relational business, it creates a lot of loyalty between yourself and the customer, and it, it allows you to compete on more ways than just price. If we all went remote, that a lot of that's gonna fade and you're gonna find relationships shifting from relational to transactional. Mm. Clients are going to come and go a lot more frequently. People are going to come and go a lot more frequently because frequently they're not going to have relationships to the people in the firm because those people are coming and going. And you're going to find more competition on price, and it's just going to not be the kind of industry that a lot of relational businesses and professional services have really really known and been at their very best. So I would say that's, that's, mm. that's the downside if it continues down that path. Okay. Here's the hope. So my daughter's 20. She's interning with Deloitte in their consulting practice this year. Like a lot of 20-year-olds and, and people her age, even graduating from college, they want to be in the office. So we would think, oh, the young people, they want to work remotely. They actually do not. The, the first ones who are in the office, when you look at pictures of people who are coming back in the office first, it's all the 20-somethings. Because they want to build those relationships. They want to get to know other people their age. A lot of them are single. They want to get to know other people in the business. They want to build those relationships. They don't want to work at home. Some do, but those are mostly the ones who are more in extreme introverted. Most young professionals today want to be in the business and build those relationships. So I don't see this as a trend that's going to continue long term. I think that we're going through a normalization phase. There, there will always be flexibility around work. The, the pandemic proved to a lot of businesses that it can be done. But I think we're going to move ourselves back into in-person. Now, that's going to look different when we start to look at commercial space and how much we need and how we want to use it and all those kinds of questions that business owners will ask themselves. But I think there's, there's going to be a need, both on the client side as well as the team side, for, for things in person in a little more regular way. So I see that as a very helpful thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a hybrid that that's that wins, right? It, it, you got to be in person. And I don't think that the full remote works, to your point. And it's really interesting to know about the younger people, which makes sense. They like community. They came from a community with college and their friends, and they want to continue that into their work years. 
And I also think that there's some innovation that can happen, right? I think companies can be really innovative to the point of how do we continue, you know, how do we think outside the box to build our culture and to build that community and, and give flexibility. So I think that's really, really interesting. Um, you know, I, I want to ask you about last question is on building and evolving leaders, right? So you, because you go and help leaders be good leaders, right? And sometimes they're younger leaders, like I was when you helped us, and sometimes they're experienced. But it's a matter of how do you build up, you know, the new people, the 20 year olds, the 25 year olds, what are ways that companies can really start to, to enhance their, the, the lineage of leaders within their firm to help kind of spur that mindset and get, you know, multiple leaders for 15, 20, 30 years down the road? Gosh, man, I, I think the I, I hate to go back to something we've already talked about, but there's nothing simpler and easier than author editor. Because one of the biggest challenges with high performers, type A personalities, so our, our folks who are natural type type A's, our high performers, the, the folks we've tapped and we've said, that's the future of our business. In every case, everyone listening to this, in every case to the person, they are natural authors. They take ownership, they show initiative, they display critical thinking. And everyone listening to this right now is nodding their head going, yeah, you just described Sandra perfectly. You just described Jose to, to, the, to the T, right? Because they, they take ownership, they show initiative, display critical thinking. Here's the problem with natural authors. They don't know when not to author. Hmm. So they, they author everything they touch when they should be giving it to their team. So I'll, I'll, I'll end with a quick fun story. So I was working with the COO of a chemical, hustle chemical company this past year. Really nice guy, works crazy hours, 75, 80 hours a week, traveling all the time. I said, Jeff, you've got to push this down on your team a little bit more. You got to give them more responsibility. He said, yeah, but they're working so hard. I just feel bad. And I shared this story with him. I said, well, during the pandemic, my wife convinced me to join Orange Theory Fitness. Okay. So if you don't know Orange Theory Fitness, it's high intensity interval training. Okay. So I think the first eight classes, I, I died eight times, Matt. So <laughs> I, I'm living my ninth life. It's my best <laughs> life at the moment. Okay. And, and so one of the trainers in, in Orange Theory, and Orange Theory has, it's a combination of treadmills, rowers, and weight floor. And you kind of circulate around and I'll burn 800, 900 calories in an hour. So it's very intense. So I had a coach in there named Mirka. And Mirka is from Slovakia. She does, she's since moved on from coaching, but she was about six feet tall and, you know, had that kind of rich Slovakian accent. And if Mirka liked you, the way she would show you she liked you is she'd push you harder. So one day we're getting off the rower and there's some medicine balls. We have to do this exercise on one leg, which is hard to do with a medicine ball. And the heaviest medicine ball in there is like 20, is 12 pounds. So we're all lined up. Well, Merka comes over to me, only me. She takes my medicine ball away from me, looks me in the eye, hands me a 25 pound dumbbell and says, you're welcome and walks away. And so I tell Jeff, I said, Jeff, the only way you're going to really elevate your business is you've got to push your team to lift heavier weights. You can't be the only one benching 200 pounds and they're drinking coffee watching you. That's not how you grow leaders. That's not how you grow a business. Because something happens to you, no one can lift the weight. So he said, well, okay, so what if you struggled? And I said, what if my team struggles? I said, well, I was struggling. And Mirka came over, saw me struggling because it was hard to do it with 25 pounds. And she gave me pointers and tips on how to do it better. But at no point did she take the weight away. Because the editor seat really is a coaching seat. We're trying to help people lift that heavier weight so they get stronger. We don't want to hurt them. We're not trying to injure our team, but we're trying to get them stronger, just like you would in the gym. So I, I love that analogy. It's just about you know, taking the chance and taking the risk 
to stretch our team, give them heavier weights. So, so they're growing their leadership skills and, and they're able to eventually sit in our seat, which then allows us to move one seat higher. I love it. And I, I love that we that the answer came full circle to how we began the conversation. And, and really, in reality, by growing your leaders, by providing the author versus editor mentality, you're going to determine who are the leaders and who aren't, who's able to author, who's not, who's able to take that initiative and want that ownership to your point, which is a great way to sift through who are the future leaders and who are the high the, the high potentials of your of your firm. Brandon, I mean, I, I really appreciate this time. I, 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 again, like I said, I could keep talking about workplace and and how to help evolve leadership because I, I, I feel that you are one of the best in the in the business on it. But I'm going to close it out with two of my questions that I always ask all my readers or all my my guests on the show. And the first one is because I love these conversations because I learn, and I hope everybody that listens learns. And I think that we should all be constant learners. And one way I also learn is by reading books from smart people. Now I ask you. What's one book out there that you think everybody should read that's outside of your two books? We all know that we need to go yeah. buy these books. What's one book you think that everybody should read? So I think I think if, if you want a good supplement to what we've talked about here today, anything by Brene Brown. So Brene Brown is kind of an expert in vulnerability. That's her specialty. And she talks about the strength in vulnerability. She's got a book that's in my bookshelf right behind me. It's Daring Greatly. And now I love Brene. Most of her books are about kind of a similar vein. So you probably only need one, but Daring Greatly would be, would be a great start because it really helps leaders to understand there's power and vulnerability because when we move out of that author seat and sit in that editor seat and we get our teams to do it, that's vulnerable. So learning how, when to do that, but, but vulnerability can be an invitation to others and make us better leaders. So I would start there, Matt. I think that's a great start. Great. And I know, I think I know where you're going to go with this answer, but I have to ask it because I have to stay consistent with our podcast is, and this comes from, I learned it from Barron's and their conferences is that they ask their guests, what's one piece of actionable advice that you think our listeners should take away from this conversation? I'm not going to spoil it, but I think I know where you're going to go, but what's one piece of actionable advice you think our listeners should take So away? I'm, I'm going to... I think you know where this is going to go. I think everybody knows where this is going to go, but I'm going to come at it slightly differently. So look at your time you're spending every week. Okay. I always know my clients have an author editor challenge or opportunity if they are over 60 hours a week, because almost in every case, they're sitting in the author seat too much. When we sit in the editor seat as leaders, the way that I've described today, you can be extremely effective in the business and work 45, 50 hours a week. But if you're over 65 hours, you're sitting in the author seat way too much. You're limiting your team, you're actually perpetuating burnout, and you're burning yourself out. And most importantly, you're not spending time with your family and loved ones. You're, you're, you're not getting that time that you want to, to connect with the people close to you. So I would start there as a quick, simple, practical kind of self-diagnostic. And based on how you answer the question, I think everyone listening knows what they need to do. I love it. Brandon Smith, you are the the workplace workplace therapist, and there's a reason you got that name. I appreciate your time, your insight, and I'm sure that there's listeners that are going to want to continue to follow you, maybe interact with you. How can they follow you? How can they interact with you? I'm sure they can buy your books on Amazon, but what's the best way to stay in touch with you for all of us? Simple way. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn. If you want to just find me, just Google the workplace therapist. I am the only one. So you'll, you'll find me very easily. If you like the author-editor concept, the book, you, the way you want to search for it is The Author versus Editor Dilemma. So that's the title of the book. It's The Author versus Editor Dilemma. 
and it's the leadership secret to unlocking your team, your time, and your impact. But just search under the author versus editor dilemma, and you'll you'll find you'll find the book. Both in, yeah. right now it's Kindle and paperback. I'm recording the audio version uh, this summer, so soon it'll be up on Audible. But you can get it in those first two versions right now. And go and get it. You're not going to be disappointed. Brandon Smith, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us here on Bridging the Gap. Super appreciative of uh, of all of your insight. Stay well. Matt, it's my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 